This is episode 24 of The Janet Lewis Show. In the podcast, I'll be talking with people who have tapped into what they love and are living the life they imagined. Or maybe they didn't imagine it, but have become super successful at what they're doing. They've been able to figure out what gives them energy or makes them happy and turn it into a business that they have found or a career that allows them to shine. We're going to talk about their life story, how they got to where they are, and what has influenced their journey. Today, we're talking with Laura Beauprin, an author, professional speaker, and founder and creative director of Lab Creative. Laura has been an entrepreneur for over 18 years. She originally founded a very successful wedding stationery business where she was featured in top publications and won awards for her unique designs. Then in 2015, something happened and she started to think bigger, dig deeper, and wanted to create a business where she could really help people and have an impact. After a lot of hard work, Lab Creative was born to help growth-minded entrepreneurs create strategic and memorable brands that stand out from the crowd, attract the right customers, and translate into business success. Lab Creative combines their signature process and a dash of their chemistry to help clients understand the true magic of who they are and what they have to offer so they can create an authentic and meaningful brand. Part of the story that I love is Laura was able to take her skill set, her passion, and was not afraid to make a massive change to get to where she really wanted to be, helping people and making a difference. One of the things I appreciate about Laura is that she sees what's possible. She's not afraid to dream or take risks. She sees the world through a half glass full, let's make the most of every moment lens. This is part of what makes her unique and makes clients want to work with her. She loves to help others discover and leverage their magic, helping them become happier and more fulfilled. So Laura, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Janet. That was such an amazing intro. It's always interesting to hear back how people see you. So thank you. Yeah. Well, and some people say, wow, that was really me. And it's like, yeah, when you're being authentic, it's, it's easy. <laughs> you know, like it's easy to create what is really you. <laughs> so thank you for being authentic. <laughs> That's true. So I originally met Laura a few years ago through The Collective, which is a group that Libby Wildman put together for female entrepreneurs in Toronto. And I've been following Laura on LinkedIn ever since. I love the information she shares about branding and about her personal life. She's super authentic, as I just mentioned, and provides the good and the struggles of running a business. But the posts that stand out the most to me are the ones where she showcases her clients and have come up... um, with what they with what they have after they've gone through her program. So first, the graphic design around them is incredible. Like it's so beautiful and the messaging is so unique to each one and you're really able to pull that out of the client and everything kind of comes together to show that. It's fantastic. Um and I'm totally looking forward to this conversation with Laura so we can talk about business, but I'm also interested in hearing more about her backstory because I know a little bit about it, but I'm looking forward to digging deeper. So Laura, perhaps we can start off with a bit of your history, like where did you grow up? What was it like? Um, What were you passionate about as a young girl? And then we can move into how you jumped into owning and operating your own business and talking about your transition into a brand new business. Like we have so much to cover. So much. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's take it back, back to the childhood. So I grew up in Guelph, which is a town just about an hour outside of Toronto. And we traveled a lot. So my dad is, uh, 
very interesting character. I think I, I get a lot of, you know, my traits definitely from him. He is a world champion model airplane pilot. If you even knew that was such a thing. And so he was sponsored in my childhood and we had a wood panel station wagon and a trailer. And I spent a good portion of my childhood driving around North America, going to model airplane contests. So that was sort of such a informative time in my life because I was traveling a lot. I was meeting new people. I got really used to being around adults. My parents had parties often and we were, I was often at these contests. I was playing with other people's kids and meeting new people at these events. And so, so I got that, that travel bug, I think very early on in my life. So it was a very unusual childhood in many ways. Uh, and then my dad also got his pilot's license. So we had a small single engine airplane. And, you know, when we weren't in our wood panel station wagon, we were in his four seater airplane traveling places, which to me was very normal, but wasn't necessarily normal for, for most people. So it was probably in many ways, a very unusual childhood. Yeah. And so adventurous. Definitely. And so um, as you're like traveling around, like, what is it that's keeping you busy? What are you doing in this, when all this travel is going on? Because I know when I traveled, like if we ever went like a little camper with my parents, I was an avid reader. So I was always reading 24 seven, but what is it that you were doing? Where did you find pleasure? Yeah, my brother knows is in books, um, you know, listening to music. I would listen to music a lot. You know, I had my dolls. I, I love to draw. I was always kind of an artistic kid. So I would do that. And then when we got to wherever we were going, we would find the other kids and we'd be playing and having adventures and, you know, playing games and just having a lot of free fun. Uh, so that was, it was such a interesting time when I think back to that just how they just like okay let's go play and they hang out and it's it's like we kind of lose that as adults this ability to very quickly meet new people and like hey let's play let's do this thing and it's uh but I think that experience helped me learn how to interact with new people very quickly and connect with them and so you mentioned you grew up in Guelph. So you went to elementary school, did you high school there? And then what did you do after high school? After high school, I went to uh, Sheridan College and took graphic design. So I had an amazing high school teacher who, uh, it was kind of a new, new class at the time. And it was basically design, you know, but back in the day, it was, you know, a lot less, you know, detailed and, and that the programs are different, but it was kind of the beginner of that, but I was too practical to ever think about becoming an artist. I was like, no, I need a career. And, and that just didn't seem to work for me. Um, so this to me seemed to marry that my love of art and creation with something that I could see as like a tangible career path. So this is like grade 10. So I was a very practical teenager. No kidding. And, <laughs> I know. But, but basically from the time I was 15, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And that teacher was amazing because I took all of his classes and then he even got special permission to teach me more advanced stuff kind of concurrently while he was teaching another class. Cause I'd taken all of his classes already by grade 11. And I was his first student to ever go to design school and graduate. 
from graphic design. So it was a very special kind of relationship that we had. Um, and we actually reconnected a couple of years ago and had lunch together. It was super fun after, you know, 20 plus years. Wow. That's amazing. And also like, I think Sheridan was actually really, really well known for their graphic design program. It so it's was. not like it was an easy program to get into by any stretch of the imagination for people that don't know that. Yeah. So at the time, I don't know what it's like today, but um, I was told that there was over a thousand applicants. I believe they interviewed a few hundred and accepted a hundred ish. And so I went, I was one of those 100 or so that were, were accepted in that first year. So that, that felt pretty good. Although at the time, um, you know, going to college was kind of looked down on in the school system. I, I think, I don't know if it still is, but uh, I remember feeling very judged uh, by the guidance counselor at my school for not going to university because that was the way to go. And I was like, well, I'm going to have a job when I get out of school. <laughs> and it was so interesting to see that, that judgment uh, and stigma around it. Oh, for sure. And, and I think like, I'm not hundred percent sure, but we're, would there even really be any comparable programs at the university level to Sheridan back then? Definitely not. Although now um, Sheridan does have a, it is a degree program. It's a four-year Sheridan York University. So it is slightly different. It's one more year, uh, but it was a super intense program. We actually lost probably 30% of the people who did get accepted um, in the first year. So, you know, it's, it was very intense. I couldn't keep, I couldn't work. Like I tried to have a part-time job. It was almost impossible because of the, the amount of work that was required. So it was an intense program and a time that I look back on and think, man, that was pretty informative in my, in my life. What is the thing you think you learned the most when you're at that program and it was so intense? Well, it was funny because at the time I, I actually really hated typography. I didn't like, I, my teacher was really tough. I felt like I could never please him. I was just always struggling with that. And then I ended up being a typography teacher in college a couple of years ago. And I love it. I'm like so particular about typography. I can spot a spacing issue like across the room and, you know, so I, I just, even though he was really tough, it just helped me develop this love for it. Um, and so that was very, that very much formed kind of the, the desire I have around really powerful typography. And so for people that don't know, what is typography? Okay. So yeah, that's, that is a good question. That is sort of the technical term. So think about the fonts that you would have in your programs, right? Maybe people are familiar with using Canva or a word document or whatever that is. Typography is basically the, you know, the, the fonts and lettering you choose for your brand, for, you know, how you lay it out, the spacing. There's so many nuances with typography. Um, and so to me, it's really important to get that right when it comes to branding, because your fonts, fonts have personalities just like businesses and brands do. So just like you need to have the right colors, you also need to choose the right fonts. And that really is what typography and the layout, it's not just choosing the fonts. It's also, you know, the size of the heading versus the body copy and white space and the spacing around paragraphs and all of that. So it's, it's more than just the fonts themselves. Uh, it's sort of the whole, the whole picture. 
Oh, okay, good. So you're at college and you are taking all of your courses. Do you know what you're going to do at the end? Have you figured that out? I mean, I figured I would work in a, you know, design studio, but I didn't really know. I was 17 when I started college. So it was, I was young. I was the youngest one in my program where I was joked. I'm like, it's like halfway through my second year before I can legally drink at the bar at school, you know, when I started college, which was kind of funny and comical trying to find ways to sneak me into the pub at school uh, when I was underage. Cause I was just so young when I started. So I think I was open to, to whatever would, would come. And so you um, finished college. We should talk more about sneaking into the pub because I have a lot of experience doing that, but maybe that'll be another podcast. Yes. <laughs> I feel like I became a, quite a pro at the loopholes, <laughs> getting to know the bouncers, you know, like getting in before a certain time to make sure that you were already there for dinner, whatever was happening. Yeah, there was, there was some pretty strong strategies I developed. <laughs> So um, what did you, you leave college, you graduate from college, then what do you end up doing? Well, I'll back up a, a tiny bit because um, partway through my second year, shortly before I became of age and could legally go to the bars, um, I was in a really bad car accident uh, and actually lost that year of school. So I was in a head-on collision with a drunk driver just as I started that second year. And I spent the next two years recovering from that. So I lost the rest of that school year. Once I got out of hospital, I had to move back home with my parents so they could help take care of me and I could complete my rehab. Um, And I went back to school. I had to redo my second year. So I ended up graduating a year after my original group of classmates, but got into a new group with amazing people who actually went through quite a number of surgeries and almost lost that year again but I had amazing teachers uh, and amazing orthopedic really pulled together to make sure that I could complete that year again and then go on to finish that third year with that group. And, and I did. So thankfully I had all of those people really pulling for me and supporting me along the way and doing everything they could to make sure that, that I was able to finish that, that year. Yeah, well, because I would imagine like you were talking about how it was hard to kind of manage and juggle everything in the first year, just with how much work they were giving you. Now you're away from the program for two years, you go back to it. So you're kind of a little bit out of study mode, right? Um, But then you're back in this program, trying to keep up, plus getting additional surgeries done like that must have been a lot to juggle. It was, but I realized that we're so much more capable of what we think that we are. And when you're really put to the test, you can accomplish a lot more than you think. So I was in the hospital. I had a project due on signage and I'm at Sunnybrook hospital. And I decided I'm going to do my project on the signage at Sunnybrook. And I had one of my classmates bring me a camera push me around the hospital in a wheelchair with my, you know, my IV pole hanging and everything. And I started working on my project while I was still in the hospital, probably still heavily medicated. And it's amazing. You know, when I look back at that time, I'm thinking, I can't believe the things I accomplished, but knowing that my teachers were, you know, supporting me and they weren't, they weren't going easy on me. They weren't giving me the grades, but they were like, your work actually was in some ways better. 
because I was just so bound and determined that I was not going to lose another year of school. Yeah. And also in that like bound and determined, was it really like you had your surgeries and your health to worry about and school? So were all that other noise, was that all that other stuff that could be going on was maybe blocked out? Is that part of it too? Possibly. And I think too, you know, I could feel my mental health was starting to suffer and I was struggling with the thought of losing another year of school. And I'd made so many good friends and they were like, whatever you need, we're going to help get you to school. We're going to push you in a wheelchair. We're going to make sure you've got groceries and food and we're supporting you in your apartment, all of these things. And just the thought of having to start again was just so depressing. And I'd struggled with that throughout. And I had amazing or my book launch, you know, he sends me a Merry Christmas text message at the holidays. Like, you know, we're, we're on a texting basis now and he cared about my mental health and he sent me back to school in a rather fragile state and said, you go back and finish. I had seven weeks left to finish. That's it. Seven weeks to finish that semester. He said, you go back and finish that. And you were back here the day you're done. And we're going to do this surgery that you need to have but he, he waited. And, and I don't know that every surgeon would have, they would have said, you have to do this now. We can't send you back to school in this state. You could, you know, it could really be damaging. And he trusted me and he allowed me to do that. And that meant everything that he really, he took, he put my mental health first. Yeah. And that well, was beautiful. Yeah. Cause I can imagine like, it'd be so discouraging. Like my last year at Mac. So I'm a volleyball player played varsity volleyball my last year at McMaster um I blew up my knee Mm -hmm. and so basically my varsity volleyball career was over but the doctors like some doctors are like oh you're you can never play sports again other doctors were like oh you just have to like wait and rehab it and so mentally you're kind of like all over the place like what's happening here and I found that year I struggled a lot because I wasn't doing something that I loved and I'm like trying to stay focused on school and still make it through my last year. And, and I went back an extra year just to play. So then I'm also kicking myself because I'm back at school spending all of this money and it was to play and now I can't even play. So oh, yeah. yeah, it's hard. It's hard when you go through stuff like that. But as you, like, if you were to look back, what do you think is the one thing? Like, did you have any like mental tricks or anything you did if you were ever kind of getting into a funk? That's a good question. I can't, nothing I can think of offhand. I just know I'm a very kind of pigheaded and determined person. And I did have a great support system. You know, I had a best friend who would come over and be like, you're getting really boring. You need to get out of the house. Like legitimately, I had nothing to talk about except my recovery. You know, you become really boring when you're just at home. And the only place you go is physiotherapy. Like it's, and she's like, all right, we're, I'm getting you out of here. We're going out, we're going to do something. And so just knowing I had people like that around me, uh, was, was so helpful. I had a family doctor who was making sure that my mental health was being taken care of. So It was, um, while it was a very challenging time, I would not go back and change any of it. Yeah. And I would say even like mental health today has come so much further than what it was back then. So it's good that, you know, your doctors were even aware of it and paying attention to it. Yeah. It's quite phenomenal when I think back on that. So um, after you uh, finally graduated, what did you do? 
Yeah. So I graduated and I moved to Europe. <laughs> you did? Yeah. For three years shortly after. So I got a job which I hated. And I was like, what am I doing here? Um, and I just felt like I, I'd been recovering for two years and I just wanted to kind of escape that the girl on the crutches and the girl in the hospital and that, you know, like that persona, I was like, I want to go somewhere where nobody knows my story and nobody has that perception of me. And I can just, I'm like, I survived, you know, and I'm, I was finally feeling better than I'd felt in two years. And I had my last surgery and I was like, okay, like I need an adventure. Right. And I told you, I grew up having adventures and traveling. So I, I got a, a visa to work in England, the students working abroad program, the swap program. I don't know if that's still around and I uh, got a visa to go to England and found a flat and found a job and worked at a biweekly American expat newspaper of all things. And I'm still friends with several of the people I met, like two of my friends that I'm, you know, one is from Alabama, another one was from Canada, you know, different parts of the world. And we really bonded in this job that was pretty dodgy in looking back at it, but what an amazing life experience. I traveled extensively throughout Europe. And then I ended up moving to Denmark, which is where my dad is from. And I spent two years living there and got to know all my family and learned to speak Danish and worked in a design company there and just had the most, you know, epic and interesting, you know, three years of my life. Well, yeah. And like personally and professionally, it's interesting because how things are done in North America and in Canada will be very different to how things will be done in Europe. Right. Yeah. So when you think back to that time, what was the one biggest thing that you learned or the biggest takeaway, or is there something like you still do today because of something you learned then? Well, I think it really informed my design style. So I have a very clean line, very, you know, I, and I had that even in college and because of that European, especially Scandinavian influence, I was like, ah, oh, I belong here. So part of it was, I felt like this really fit me but it also really helped to inform the design style that I developed, uh, which is what I brought into this wedding stationery and what I bring in today into my business, even though I don't technically do any of the design work anymore. So it really informed my design aesthetic, but it's also just the, the work ethic and being an entrepreneur, you know, we don't, <laughs> the working hours and vacation, it's all very strange, but you know, I was getting paid, I was getting like six weeks paid vacation in, in Denmark and getting paid very well. And I, I still remember coming in sick to work, which I think now, like nobody goes in sick and nobody goes anywhere if they're sick today, but I would go in, I was like, Oh, it's just a little cough. I'm okay. And I just continued to go to work and it, it continued to get worse and worse and worse until finally one day my boss came in and he was like, I've just ordered a taxi and I'm sending you home. We don't want to see you until you're better because you're starting to get other people sick in the office. <laughs> I was like, Oh, and I was, I ended up being home for like three weeks. I ended up with like bronchitis or like pneumonia or something pretty, you know, very respiratory, not great. And, but it was just such a very North American mentality that you just push through, you go to work, even if you're sick and you know, you do end up getting your colleagues sick instead of staying home for a day or two and just resting. But I was like, well, I'm not that bad. Like I can still work through this. And so that to me really now, like I don't push myself as hard. If I'm not feeling well, 
I will cancel my calls. I will take that time so that it doesn't drag on for weeks and weeks. So that was a big life lesson. Yeah. I think, you know, it's so funny. Cause I've also learned that too. Like if I am not feeling well, or I feel like something's coming on, I just automatically get more rest. And because as an entrepreneur, like for, I don't know how you feel, but it's like, if you're not working, I feel like, A, I'm not being productive, but B, I'm not making money, especially if you're in a service-based business, right? Yeah. And the longer that you're sick, the longer that you're out, which can really impact your business. And I don't think like employees that have sick time and benefits don't really understand that piece of it. Because I have friends who are full-time employees and, you know, they might be out sick for a week and it's like, oh yeah, I'm another sick day today. And I'm like, that's five days in a row. <laughs> it's just a different <laughs> way of thinking, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then um, you're loving it in Europe. What made you come back to Canada? That's a good question. I feel like, so the job I was in, uh, the company, things weren't going well. I could feel like you know, my job was maybe not going to be there for much longer. And in fact, the company did end up closing, you know, um, probably within a year, like they had to downsize. And I just felt, you know, I had been dating while I lived there and I, I hadn't met anybody. And I thought, you know what, I feel like I want to be closer to my family. Like there was just something pulling me back home. And I thought I just, as the longer I was away, I thought, you know, when I do have a family, like I do want to be, you know, closer to my parents. And, you know, maybe if I had met somebody while I lived there, you know, I would still be there, but that wasn't the case. And I, I decided to come home and I met my husband two months later. No way. (laughs) Yep. At a wedding. Where did you, at a wedding, a friend's wedding, the two of you yeah. both are single. Yeah, we were at the 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 friend table by the bar, you know, the one at the back, <laughs> the rowdy table. Where they put all the single yeah. people. <laughs> yes. yes, exactly. And, you know, we've been together now for 19 years. Actually, be it's going to be, oh my God, is it going to be 20 years this year? It was, it was 2002, 20 years. Wow, today. congratulations. Yeah. So it's, uh, I'm like, it was all meant to be. And I met him at the wedding of a woman I met at the physiotherapy clinic when, where, when I was recovering from my car accident, I'm like, it was all meant to be. Yeah. You know, I I, like, listen, I, I am a firm believer in the universe. Like, I think the universe gives us what we need when we need it. And sometimes we might want it sooner, but we shouldn't have it sooner. And, you know, there's always so much more at work and at play than I think any of us really know. Oh, yes. I fully believe that. (laughs) (laughs) So um, you come home, like, how did you end up starting your own business? Like, did you come home and get a job or you just decided to start your own business? I came home feeling like I didn't, what I didn't like about working in a design agency was somebody would come and like hand me a brief of like, this is what the client would like, you know, and I was in my office at my computer and needed to design from that. I was like, this sucks. Like I'm too much of a people person to sit behind a desk all day and not interact with clients. Um, I still remember my best friend saying, I can't believe it took you this long to realize this. Like, even though I do sit behind a computer a lot, like I just, I need to be interacting with clients and, and people. And so I came back and was like, what am I going to do? I, you know, do I want to start my own thing? So 
my, my beginnings were, were interesting. I got a job at a bar and was bartending <laughs> and <Check>. working. <laughs> yeah. Check worked at the bar was a beer slinger, uh, and was working on sort of like getting some clients and doing some design work, made a lot of mistakes. Uh, and then I was also working on my art and I was doing portraits. And so I, I did an exhibit at the distillery with my drawings, like trying to sell myself as an art. Anyway, it was a very interesting time. I was trying all kinds of things to see what stuck. And I ended up getting a job. Um, and it was, there was, it was a very strange job, but there was no work um, really. So I had a lot of spare time. I called them my corporate sponsor. I won't name names, but I was like, thank you to this job for paying me to sit idly all day. And, um, Philippe and I were getting married and I'd been designing invitations and I thought, you know, I'm going to start designing some wedding invitations. And that's how I started. I literally started while I was sitting in this job where I was bored out of my mind with nothing to do. And I designed my first collection of wedding invitations, my first website, and then that, I, I left that job, got another job. I was not a great employee. I think I've learned that. Like I, people say, would you ever go back and get a, a, a real job? You know, I was like, I would be a terrible employee. I don't, it's a conversation for another day, but I got a job with a small designer, you know, company and like three weeks in that, that ended. And this is four months before our wedding. We've just moved into a new place and I'm out of work. I was like, okay. And, you know, Philippe and I looked at each other and he was like, there's never been a better opportunity for you to start this. Do it. He was very supportive. That's great. Very. He always has been always like, even to this day, like the conversations, he was like, I want you to like thrive. You do whatever you need to do. I'm behind you hundred percent. So I feel very blessed to have such a supportive, you know, person in my life behind me. And that was how I really started the wedding invitation business. I started reaching out to the magazines and I, you know, I was pretty bold. I was like calling, you know, wedding bells and the different magazines and wedding planners and trying to create collaborations and getting my name out there. And, you know, I, I turned a profit in my first year. It was tiny. Like, I'm like, I made more money than I spent. It was very exciting. And then <laughs> it is know, exciting. It is exciting. <laughs> and I got to be known because there was nobody designing wedding invitations like I was in 2004. You know, it was years later, probably almost maybe not a decade later, but quite a few years later before and before graphic designers started actually designing wedding invitations. Because I remember early on feeling very judged, like, Oh, you're designing wedding invitations. Like, yeah. Like I was a lower <laughs> level designer because I was doing that. I was like, I take offense to that. I'm like, but I'm, I'm doing well. I'm getting featured in magazines and I'm getting award. Like, you know, yeah. so I started to just own that and be like, you know what? I'm really good at this. And I'm changing the face of wedding invitations. And the whole industry has changed dramatically since then. And I really feel like I was a part of that change. And, and that feels really good. Yeah. It's crazy when you're in, in an industry for so long and you move through all of those changes. But then when you look back, you're like, whoa, because I look at, like I started Orange Fish in 2006 before there were really even any online stores. Like Amazon was selling books. Indigo was selling books, but I wanted to support made in Canada. <laughs> so it's like, 
when you look at it now and how easy it is to open an online store, it's amazing how much that industry has grown and it, it's opened the doors for a lot more people. Um, but the one thing I want to come back to is like, I remember when people started creating more cards, like I actually had some girls um, that used to work for me at uh, Sun Microsystems and they created a card company as well. And that was probably 2008, maybe. So it's still quite a few years after you'd started doing that, right? Um, but it is, it's funny how different entrepreneurs look at different businesses and can kind of be hard on other people, like for choosing to do what they choose. And, yeah. and I'm sure you see it because you now see so many clients that are choosing different businesses, but it's like, why, why are we so hard on each other? Why can't we just celebrate what, what each other is doing? Yeah. Because I wasn't working in a big agency, working for big name brands that somehow I was a lesser designer, you know, than they were. And in hindsight, it, you know, it, it doesn't bother me anymore, but it, it definitely hurt my feelings at the time. I was like, wait a minute, I'm good at what I do, you know, and you start to question that. And it was like, no, actually, I really love this. And I'm, I'm creating something unique and I'm doing what I want to do. Yeah. Well, and also like, think of all of the other skills you gained by running your own business. Like when you were talking about how you would um, like hustle to contact wedding bells or wherever, however the magazines were like, that's not a graphic design skill, right? So yeah. where did you learn that? How did you know that you had to do that? That's a very good question. Um, in looking back, I think, how the heck did I, this, you know, girl who had, you know, three-year graphic design, you know, diploma, three years in Europe, uh, clearly couldn't keep a job when she moved back to the country. I was like, how did I manage this? And, you know, I think my dad was always entrepreneurial. So I, you know, I could see his, his drive. He was a people person. He was always out meeting people. And so I was just, I guess I've always been pretty good at putting myself out there and that helped. Um, I had some audacity, you know, I was tenacious and ambitious. And, you know, my husband is very good with like kind of the numbers and, and some of that behind the scenes, like the only reason I made any money, was probably because he was like, okay, we need to look at like your cost of printing cost of running a business and like all those things. And I was like, I was, a, you know, he's creative too, but he has a bit more of that. I don't know that other side that I clearly <laughs> didn't have. So but it was great because we tag team because when he started his business, I helped him with all of his design work and he helped me build like trade show booths and figure out how much money I should be charging, you know, and, and I outgrew that after a time, you know, he doesn't help me with those things anymore, but I think that all of those things early on really helped me. And for some reason, I knew early on that having a professional portfolio, professional website, uh, a contract a pricing structure that was predetermined, like this was how I was running my business. I still remember, I think it was my second client saying, we hired you because you're so much more established than the other businesses that we spoke with. It's <laughs> like, oh boy, if you only knew you were my second client, but it was because I put out this professionalism. I had a professional contract. They had to sign. I wasn't wishy-washy on the pricing. I was like, this is what the costs will 
the, you know, there was no question at the end of the price, it's $500, you know, like it wasn't that I was confident in what I was charging and they felt secure in their decision to hire me. So I knew early on, and that's really informed a lot of the work I do now with branding with businesses is how you set up your business, the experience people have everything from your pricing, your contracts, the experience they have. All of those systems are just as important part of your brand as your logo is, because you can have the best logo in the world, but if you've got a crappy process and can't deliver, you're not going to get very far. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's funny because I always think like, you're only as good as your last job. So like, if you're kind of like letting your standards fall, you're not fixing your process where there's holes or gaps or problems you're not going to be able to continue to sustain and you definitely aren't going to be able to grow because a lot of the times, and I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but I feel like small business in Canada, a lot of small business in Canada is really referral based. And if people love you, like they're more than happy to share you with anyone else who is looking for your service. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And, And what I tell people is that if you don't have a solid process and client journey, somebody who could have had a great experience with you, loves you, refers them to a friend or colleague, and they have a completely different experience because you don't have your stuff together and it's, you don't have that process. They're going to question, well, why did you refer this person? I had a completely different experience. And so it actually negatively affects your brand. If you, you know, if you do rely rely on referrals, you want to make sure that the people who are referring you feel confident that the people they're referring are going to get the same experience as, as they did. And as a business owner, it helps prevent you from having to reinvent the wheel every single time you work with somebody. Yeah. 100%. Like I, I learned the most about processes when I worked at a small e-learning company and I was tasked with designing the e-learning process. So when you're, we're dealing with customers, what does that look like from beginning to end and created all the documentation to go along with it. And for me, I think there is so much value in working with a large organization and getting good training and also being able to work on projects like that, that you then can also take into your entrepreneurial journey. Cause it's just going to help you. Absolutely. Yeah. It's crazy when I look back on my entrepreneurial journey and think, wow, 18 years, like I've done a lot of stuff in that time. (laughs) Where's the time go? Where does the time go? So, um, you decided though, at some point in time, you had decided it was time for a change. Do you remember what it was that happened? Like that, that made you think I need to be doing more. I remember the exact thing and the exact moment. (laughs) So I shared about the car accident. So the night of the car accident, there was a man who had come and held my hand and kept me conscious while I was trapped in my car. And I knew his first name. I sort of knew his last name because he called the hospital the next day. And I had been searching for this man for 20 years off and on trying to locate him because I just wanted to thank him. You know, he kept me conscious when the paramedics arrived. Um, I had a pet iguana at the time in my car, (laughs) which really freaked him out when he realized there was a lizard loose in my car that was fairly big, you know, probably four foot long lizard that was loose in my car that I, I credit him with, you know, saving her life because 
if I'd been unconscious, the paramedics would not have known there was an animal in the car and she would have died that night. So my pet survived because this man's, you know, kept, but he also comforted me. He was the only one at the scene who came and just stood by my side and, and was there for me and only me. And, and was, so not the, to interrupt, but was, was he just passing by and he got out of his vehicle to help? Yeah. There was a lot of people who, who stopped, but interestingly enough, he obviously left before the police got there because they, the police did not have him as one of the witnesses, but I'm like, I know he was real. I could smell the cigarette smoke on him. Like I could see, you know, but I couldn't make out his face because he had a street light behind him. So it looked like he, he was backlit. Right. But he looked, he literally looked like an angel who had cigarette breath. <laughs> but anyway, so I'm like, okay, I know he's really, he's not a figment of my imagination. So, you know, there had been a few articles, there'd been a few times I tried to find him. And at the 20th anniversary in 2015, I remember seeing some Facebook posts, some viral things where somebody was looking for somebody. I thought there's never been a better time in the world to try to find somebody. So I put out a post on Facebook looking for him. And that post was shared over 30,000 times. I ended up being interviewed by Facebook by tons. I basically had to cancel my entire next day because I like media interviews filled my entire day. It was shared around the world. It was translated into different languages. And sure enough, he was found within about 24 hours of that post by his, his former girlfriend, the, the woman who had been visiting the night of my car accident, uh, contacted me on Facebook and said that she had been in contact with him and that, you know, she let him know that I was looking for him. And she said, I said, well, I hope if it's him that he reaches out because I'd had some weird, you know, people are strange. There'd been some, I think you'd remember. Um, and she said, if you had a pet lizard in your car that night, then this is your guy. And I had kept that piece of the story out of the media specifically because I knew that was a way to verify. And so we ended up meeting and having a coffee together, but I ended up like after 20 years searching for somebody and looking for this missing piece, you know, I actually kind of went into a funk after, like I kind of went into a depression. I was like, now what, what's, what's my purpose now? This thing has happened. And I started really struggling. And I remember uh, the anniversary of the car accident that same year, it was a few weeks after this, I'm sitting fighting with my printer, trying to address somebody's wedding envelopes uh, look at my, that I would have been trapped in my car 20 years old, earlier. And I'm sitting in my office trying to address somebody's wedding invitation envelopes while my family's sitting in the next room watching a movie. I was like, this is the last effing wedding invitation envelope I will ever address. <laughs> I'm done. It was a very like definitive moment. And I, I fulfilled on the contracts I still had and I, I did the work, but the, I did not take on another single invitation client after that. But I did then still have to figure out what am I doing now? And I, I ended up going on a retreat the following February. So about four months later, and that, that was the catalyst. That was the launch of when I created Lab Creative, when I created Brand Camp. That was the start of that really big shift. So it it happened quickly, but it was sort of a it was a long time coming. And and I think before that night where I made that decision, I was already kind of falling out of love with it. Um, I loved my colleagues. I loved our photo shoots. 
wasn't really making enough money. I didn't, I could see where the industry was going and I, I, I wasn't wanting to go there. And so I knew something had to change and I was already doing branding work for businesses. And so I was like, okay, if that's what it is, what shape do I want that to take? Yeah. And it's interesting because I, A, I don't think I'd ever want to work in the wedding industry. <laughs> like That seems like it'd be my biggest nightmare. Um, but, you know, after a while, whatever business it is that you're in, sometimes you lose your passion for it. And sometimes you outgrow it. And it's so important to recognize like when it is time to move on. And the other thing that I love that you did is you then took some time to really figure out what it was you wanted to do moving forward. Like, it's not like you just jumped into something. It's like, you really figured out like, what, what is it that I want to be doing? Yeah. And you know, I loved the wedding industry. I love, love. I loved it. I loved it. I mean, you know, and I think because, you know, I have an amazing love story and I love going to weddings. I love dancing at weddings. I miss dancing at weddings because I don't really club anymore. So I'm like weddings were always like a place I could go dance. So I just, I loved being with people while they were in love and, and just in that start of that journey. Um, and it, it fit my life. I had young, you know, at my had my kids, you know, in the few years after I started my business. So I had my, my business came first and then my kids came and it, it worked. And then I, I also, I realized I enjoyed like the photo shoots with my colleagues and the industry parties a little bit more than the actual work. And I was like, something needs to change. And I, I did, I took the time to really figure out what do I want that to look like? And I think we're always evolving. I don't think, you know, what I have today could be very different, you know, very different what, what I'm going to have in a few years. Yeah, but I, I think that's been important to know is we should always be evolving. Mm -hmm. And when we're not evolving, when we're not learning, when we're not growing, that's really when we become stagnant. And I kind of ran into that with Orange Fish because I went through something personal and then I stopped putting time, energy, and effort into learning. Whereas part of my thing is like, I love being innovative. So I was in e-learning when it first started. I jumped into e-commerce when it first started. And then it's like, you, I stayed in those industries for too long. And it's like, you lose your innovation and you stop learning and growing. Cause you're like, oh, I've been there, tried that, did that. Right. Um, and so I think it's so important to continue to learn and grow. Absolutely. I think if we think we're done, you know, then you're that's done. a bigger problem <laughs> We're you're done. Yeah. And I'm still learning about myself. I'm still learning about myself as, as a woman, as a mother, as a wife, as an entrepreneur, as a daughter, all of those things. We never stop learning. I feel like I've learned more about myself in the last five years than than I ever did. I was like, how did it take me so long to know this about myself? It's so fascinating. And I think if we stop learning in general, whether it's about ourselves or business or whatever, then that's when we really do become stagnant. Yeah. And so when you're transitioning, what do you think was the biggest challenge that you had? For me, I think in the beginning, it was probably the imposter syndrome. It was the feeling of like, who am I to do this work? 
So because I was really shifting from being a graphic designer into more of this brand positioning and strategy and the messaging. And I was like, I, I never wore that hat. That was something somebody else did. I brought that to life visually before. And I was like, that's, I'm not a wordsmith. I'm not this person. And so I, I really had to work towards building up that confidence. And, you know, I had an amazing coach who worked through me to build all of this. And, you know, I had some training wheels on in the beginning and now I'm like, I crush it every time, you know, because I just, I believe so much in the work that I do and I have the confidence in myself, but you know, that, that pivot of title and what I was offering people felt like, I don't have the background in this. I don't, I don't have an education in this, but I'm like, I didn't have an education in entrepreneurship either. Yeah. Well, but, but it, business. I learned how to become a graphic designer. Yeah. And it's also, it's interesting because it's really like the imposter syndrome is around a mindset. But even as you're talking, like when you were designing invitations for brides, that's part about branding themselves for their own wedding. Absolutely. So you had already been doing it for how many years, but it was just with a different demographic, different target market. Um, you had that skill set, you had that knowledge, but it's like, you do have to make that mental shift, right? Yeah. And I think because I'd always been good with people and I always, I listen and I just, you know, I'm not a verbose writer while sometimes I may be a verbose speaker. I I'm more of a distilled down. Like I, I want to help people. So I'm really good at taking these big ideas and long paragraphs and like distilling them down into really concise things. And so it's just really looking at what my gifts are and then getting better at those things and leveraging that. Yeah. And listen, I think it's so important for people to do, and it's not even just about like, you know, changing your business and becoming a new business. Like even people that I talk to, like I talk to so many people that struggle with the career that they're in and they feel like, no, but I've done this for 25 years. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, we're like, well, just change, just do something else. <laughs> but yeah. for someone that doesn't have that mindset, it's really scary. And it's like, no, but I only do sales. This is how I do it. And I'm like, yeah, but in sales, you have so many skills that are transferable into so many other jobs or careers or running your own business. But it's hard to get people to make that shift to think that way. And I guess, you know, I had a pretty great role model in that, um, even though my dad always wanted me to get a quote unquote real job, which I thought was hilarious. Cause I was like, you never had a real job that I can remember. But my dad came to Canada, you know, as an immigrant, as a carpenter from Denmark he worked as a carpenter. He worked in real estate. He became a corporate pilot. He had, you know, uh, rental properties. He was a model airplane pilot. So like he had multiple streams of income before that was even a thing. And he didn't have like a nine, to, like, I don't ever remember him having a nine to five job. And this is a man who pivoted from real estate to being a pilot. Like those two things don't even, there's not even a one relates to the other. So to me, it was fascinating to see that he reinvented himself multiple times very successfully. So I guess without even realizing it, I already had a role model for somebody who had done that in my life. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And so um, in your transition, and even on the other side of it, if you were to look back, like, is there something that you would have told yourself at the beginning 
to make you be able to go through it faster? Um, I don't think I, I needed to go through it faster. I don't think there's anything that I'm a quick mover. Like I move faster than a lot of people. So I think a lot of people might've done things slower. So I'm not sure speed is something I, I need to speed. I would need to speed up. Maybe there's times I could have slowed down actually. Oh, interesting. Because I tend to just jump and jump and do and do and I'm starting to embrace actually taking more time to get off the, you know, to get off the hamster wheel sometimes and just take that time to think and to be, and to, um, and to not always be doing. Yeah. I love that. Cause you know, I kind of went through that process through the pandemic in that I was always go, go, go doing 101 things. And the weird thing is I feel like I was doing nothing. And I would tell like a friend, oh my God, I hardly did anything this week. And they'd be like, what did you do? And I tell them, they're like, are you crazy? You did more in this week than I do in an entire month. But to me, it felt like nothing because it's it's that thing of like, just go, go, go. But one of the things that I've really enjoyed uh, in the last two years is the slowing down, the not having 101 different things pulling at me in 10 different directions. Um, it's been kind of, it's been kind of nice that way. So I Laura, don't, is, I wouldn't say I've had the same experience. I've no, definitely you also have kids and yeah. a husband. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's been a lot. Um, and so for me, I'm, I'm just now kind of going, okay, I need to embrace more of the slowdown and not always feel like I need to be at this frenetic pace. So, but that's a challenge because I'm like you, it's like the going and the doing and feeling like you're not accomplishing anything, but in fact, you're doing more than a lot of people. Yeah, so I it's get that. Crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. So, um, I'm aware of your time. I I've really enjoyed our conversation today, um, but I have one more question for you. I asked this to everyone. I totally stole it from Tim Ferriss because I love the question. Um, if you had a billboard downtown Toronto, a massive billboard and a message that you wanted everybody to see, what would that message be? Shine bright and take up space. Oh, I love that. I don't, I don't even remember where it came from. So a few years ago, um, I realized I was dimming my light, which might sound surprising to some people because I have a fairly large personality, but I was, I was hiding parts of myself and I was dimming my accomplishments and, and who I was, uh, because I felt like if I shine bright, then that casts a shadow on others. And I came in some of the work I was doing on myself. I realized actually me shining bright helps illuminate others. Just like if you turn on a lamp, right? That light actually helps illuminate what's around it. And so to me, it's a mantra that I have. It's in the, uh, I've like a morning manifesto that I read every day. And one of the pages says shine bright and take up space because we all are allowed to take up space in this world. It's not, not to the detriment of others, but just to be who we are, to be authentic as, as overused as that word can be to just to shine bright so that you get to be who you are and other people get to bask in your light. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Cause I've had, um, I've had the same issue as you. I have dimmed my light to be in relationships, to 
um, even have certain friendships in order to make other people feel better. And it's in working with a coach that I realized like, no, it's actually to the benefit of everybody that you are really being as big as you can be. And I don't know, like, do you think it's only women that have this or do you think men experience this too? Like does society condition us to like be more in place or make people comfortable? I think it's possibly more of a woman thing. I've heard that comment. I just posted a story that uh, a friend told me that her male colleague told her that she takes up too much space in a room. And I was like, Oh, so I think it is a woman thing when we're big, where we're boisterous, when we have loud opinions, when we show up fully, it, it, dating to Brightwell, it is allowing us to be us and, uh, you know, illuminate others. It doesn't mean everyone's going to like it, but it's also yeah. being okay that they're not there, but it's their own jealousy. It's their perception of you. And that we have to sometimes just be okay with the fact that not everybody's going to like that. And that is okay. Yeah. Like, I think one of the biggest things I like how you put that one of the biggest things is I have really learned like everybody is on their own journey. Right. And so you need to live your journey as full as you can. And some people may stay on your journey and some people might fall off along the way. And a lot of the times the people who make the comment about you shining too bright or taking up too too much space, it actually has a lot more to do with with them than it does with you. Absolutely. Healing maybe about their own life. So it really has nothing to do with you and everything to do with them. Yeah. Yeah. So fascinating. We have so much in common. It's so crazy. I know. Um, So I want to say thank you so much for your time. Um, I really enjoyed this. We might need a, you know, part two later. Uh, yeah, I think so. To talk about. Um, but if anyone wants to get in touch with you or follow you, where should they go to do that? On social media, it, our handle is Lab Creative Inc. On all the channels, we're most active on um, Instagram though. So if you want to follow us, that's the best place. And on LinkedIn as well, you can connect with me, Laura Beauprelant, and I'd be happy to connect. Okay, perfect. And I'll add that to the show notes as well. Uh, But thank you again for your time. Thanks for having me.